are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Many years ago, uh, before I was a pastor at this church, I was actually a youth leader um, of the youth group ministry. And I had to take some people to a retreat. Uh, our youth kids. This is back when our youth group was relatively small. And um, because I had other prior church obligations, I was told to come back that night along with three other deacon mothers. So I drove back from the retreat center with a van loaded with three deacons and two other little kids. And the time was 1 a.m. That's when we started, and our travel time was four hours. So we were pretty far away. Needless to say, um, a full day of activity in the youth, with the youth program, youth retreat. I was exhausted. And so as I was dri- driving, I was clearly just drowsy as well. And so I kept the window open to, so the cold air would just kind of splash against my face. And I would try to you know, stay awake and you know, open my eyes or slap myself, do whatever I had to do to keep driving. And I remember at that point, I was passing through Culpeper when all of a sudden I saw blue lights behind me. I got, I know, right, gasp. I pulled over, and a state trooper came over to my window, and he told me that I was speeding. And quite honestly, at that point, I really had no idea how fast I was going, because again, I was half asleep. I had no idea if I was speeding or not. So when he asked me for my license and my registration, immediately all the mothers woke up from their deep sleep. They saw the police officer, and they began immediately pleading on my behalf in their broken English. They began saying... Please, officer, please, now police, please, officer, we're, we're church people. I'm a deacon, she's a deacon, she's a deacon, and he's a youth leader. It's so late. We're coming back from a, and I quote, a passionate retreat. We're going back to church now to serve more and to worship God more. And that's how they're pleading to the officer. I was so tired. At that point, I didn't really hear what they said afterwards. I'm sure that at that point, they were giving their testimony by now. But then the officer looked in and said, thank you. I understand, but you were speeding. In other words, I understand, but you broke the law when you sped. He comes back a few minutes later with a ticket, and that's the one time I'm so glad it takes a long time to process a ticket because I took a nap those those 10 minutes, and it was a great power nap. I needed it. But that ticket and that experience had always been etched into my memory, primarily because it was my, and this is where I'm going to boast, my only speeding ticket I've ever received, but also his nonchalant response of, look, I get it, I understand, but you broke the law. Now compare that to my friend up in, my college friend up in Chicago. This guy had a Camry, an old Camry, but for some reason he, for, for some reason he thought he was speed racer. He was a speed demon. He loved going fast, especially in the residential areas. It was horrible. And one day, I was with him, and he got pulled over. And even before the officer could say anything, my friend blurts out, I know I was speeding. Here's my license and registration. Just, I know. Just give it to me so I can just get this thing going so I can go home. You see, in both cases, tickets were given, but there was a difference in the lawbreaker. One was intentional, the other was not. And so verse 19 kind of explains there's a difference here between, for instance, sins 
and transgression. In verse 19, a question was asked, why then the law? The answer, it was added because of transgressions. So what does that even mean? Now, we've heard that word thrown around, haven't we? Transgressions. With the emerging scandals from popular sports figures, I remember during Tiger Woods' uh, press conference regarding his scandal, he said in the interview, I have let my family down, and I regret those transgressions with all my heart. So people think that transgression is sin, and sin is transgression, but there's more to it than that. It starts off with the law of God. You have to understand that. It starts off with the law of God and how the law makes sin into a transgression against God. So it's not, oops, I messed up, I have transgressed. Oops, you caught me, I have transgressed. It's more than that. Sin is something that we all have. Turn to your neighbor and say this, I have sinned. It's true. It's the foolish, rebellious heart that just does what it normally does, right? Maybe people think they can get a free pass because they were ignorant to what sin is, just like I thought perhaps I, might get a, I should have gotten a free pass because I was unaware of my reckless driving. But that can't be because we have something called, again, the law. And in this case, we have the law of God. And because we have the law of God, the sins we commit become, get this, this is the definition of transgression, a blatant violation of God's will. A transgression isn't just some subjective insensitivity to God's feelings or to your conscience. Transgression is choosing to get this intentionally, disobey, willfully, trespass against God's revealed will, His law. Transgression, when we say we have transgressed, we are saying, God, I know, but I'm not. I'm not going to follow. I'm not going to obey. I'm not going to listen. I know I shouldn't. I know I couldn't. I know I really shouldn't, but I'm going to still do it, Lord. You see, it is intentional. One commentary put it, sin is always worthy of punishment, but the particular form of sin known as transgression evokes greater punishment because it involves a conscious violation of a known law of God. So what does the law of God do? What is the purpose of the law of God? It exposes the intentional rebellious sins in us. And in this case of this passage, it challenges something very specific that we all deal with. Our inherent self-righteousness. Meaning, we all have a hard time admitting we are wrong. Because we don't want to be wrong. We don't want to admit that we have a problem. You know, one of the first steps in Alcohol Anonymous is to say, well, besides saying your name, is to say, I am an alcoholic, right? I have a problem. But self-righteousness is our plague. We don't want people to have anything against us. We want to say we're fine, but the purpose of the law is to point out the fact that we do have a problem, a very big problem, so it's an issue of self-righteousness. But Pastor David, I know I may sin in this or that. I know I may stumble a little bit here and there, but I'm not self-righteous. Didn't Jesus call the Pharisees self-righteous? I'm not like the Pharisees. I want God. I need God. You saying that you're not self-righteous is being self-righteous. 
Self-righteousness is having confidence in your own righteousness, that you're fine, that you can do it yourself, that you are somehow without fault, without blemish, that you're all that, that you don't need anyone, that you don't care of the opinions of others, that you're a better person in behavior, in conduct, and, and opinions than other people. I don't do that, Pastor David. Well, the Bible says that we all do. Every single one of us, including myself. The epitome of self-righteousness is thinking that there is someone who is worse than you are. Therefore, you think that as long as there is subjective comparisons, okay, that we make with other people, then we don't have to really deal with our sins. Because what I'm going through, my sins, my mistakes, my feelings aren't as bad as that person's. So therefore, if anyone needs to deal with their sins, it's that person. It's the murderer, not the person who's angry. It's the adulterer. It's not the person who lusts. It's the one who is manipulative and prideful, not the one who's arrogant. But God has his law. And what his law does is that it takes out the sin of comparative holiness. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 7, 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You've heard of that. Jesus is arguing against comparative holiness because when it's all said and done under the law of God, we're all guilty. So now it doesn't matter whether someone is better or worse than you. All that matters is how you, as the individual, you and I, how we measure up to God's revealed standards. That's why if you speak to people who are truly mature in faith, people who are genuinely in love with Christ, these people who you would even classify as like just godly men and women of faith, these people are like saints to you. These individuals are actually some of the most humble people because they know the law of God. Like you won't see them bragging about their, their biblical knowledge. You won't, you won't see them bragging about their experiences or bragging about this. No, no. They'll be the most humble people. Why? Because they know their sins. And they know that compared to God's righteous standard, they have transgressed. These people have long ago stopped comparing themselves to others because as soon as they understood the gospel message, they began measuring their success not against their peers, not against their colleagues, but against God. And they realized, Lord, have mercy on me for I fall short. Have mercy on me. It's really interesting how this point really struck a chord with Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 7, he explained how one day he thought of this one particular command out of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet, he says. And we know what covet means. It means to lust after or to have a great desire, obsession for. And that command, for some reason, got stuck in Apostle Paul's mind so much that as he began mulling over, over and over again, he began to see that specific law of God in his life. Everywhere. And the realization that suddenly everywhere he looked, every person he ever spoke to, every situation he was in, he looked how he saw, how he coveted everything. The things that he saw as beautiful, he now realized he truly desired to possess them. The praises that he received from his peers began to become a covetous desire to always be esteemed by them. 
Even his hatred for Jesus, back when he was Saul, was driven by a covetous desire to be proud of his own accomplishments, by the works of his own hands, by his own subjective interpretation of the law. He wanted to be able to be proud of himself and hold himself high because of his self-righteousness, but not the righteousness of others, of someone else, namely Jesus. That he did it. That he helped himself. That he overcame. That's why God has given us the law. It was to expose our sin and how we've missed the mark and how we've blatantly violated God's righteous standard. Now here's my question for you considering this point. Where do you fall short in right now? Where in your life do you feel the greatest impulse to look down on people? Like, I'm not talking about now that you know you're a sinner, there can be no order in your household or in your life because we're all sinners, so why bother trying at all? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where in your life do you place such high, such great value upon yourself that you feel justified and compelled to look down on and to belittle and to hate and to hold bitterness towards someone? That because of this one single accomplishment in your life or this one possession that you have in your life or that degree that you were able to obtain or this trait that you have or this one area of expertise in your life that somehow you feel compelled to demean, devalue, and destroy that person who's lacking in those areas. God's law says you've got nothing. God tells us to stop because we've, we're being judged by his standard, his law. And his law exposes the fact that we've all sinned against God. Look, if you're new to our church and you're new to this kind of preaching, you'll soon see that every single message that I will ever profess before you as I stand, as there's breath in me, will be the gospel message I hope and pray, and that gospel message will be about you need to change, not them. People want to come and they want to sit and they want to hear how my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my wife or my husband or my children or my siblings or my mom or my dad, how they need to change. No. There is just as much a problem as you are and me. The gospel directs its attention to your heart right now. Where do you need to change? Now, to verse 1920, it's going to be a bit confu confusing. I want you to follow with me here. This section here actually speaks of the different aspects of God's law. I'm going to go over this briefly and, in, and then later, eventually, into my second, second part. Look, we know the first aspect of the law, and that was our first point. The law was given to expose our sins and show how we've transgressed against God's righteous standard, right? You remember that? Well, the second aspect of the law is mentioned in verse 19 as the offspring. And we all know what Paul meant by the offspring, singular, not plural, not the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham, but the singular descendant, the one and only, the Messiah, the King, salvation, Jesus Christ, right? And so Jesus comes after, which the law was no longer needed then. The seed he is. The third aspect of the law speaks of the manner in which it was given. 
Even though God had directly given the law to Abraham, the law was established by a mediator. You remember that word there? Two mediators, in fact, the angels. The angels, they represented God. Moses represented the people. Now, this all sounds confusing, so just walk with me here. But that's why the end of verse 20 is so important and echoes what was said last week about the covenant made between Abraham and God. We all know that when more than one party is involved in an agreement, there needs to be a mediator, someone to reconcile or arbitrate the agreement. But because God was the one, remember, not Abraham, but God alone walked through that split sacrifice, God alone, he was the one who took the oath, so therefore he alone ratified the agreement made for us. Meaning, he alone was the authority to authorize the covenant that he had made for us. So what does that mean? It means this, God did it. Everything. Salvation, God did it. Grace, it's all his. Mercy, it's all his. God did it. God did it for you. Nothing that you could have ever done. There's no merit, no work, no righteousness apart from Christ Jesus. God did it. He did it for you because only God could do it. And that leads us to our second and last point. God leads us, God's law leads us to Christ. In verse 21, we have a second question that's asked. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? In other words, is the law opposed to God's promise? Look, I know it's easy how people might think the law and promise are opposite. I spoke on this, I touched on this a couple weeks ago. The promise was a one-sided expression of God's grace, and the law was a two-sided agreement that God made with his people. The promise was meant to be believed, and the law was to be obeyed, lest you be condemned. But here, Paul is arguing for the fact that these two are not in competition. So he goes on to say in verse 21 very clearly, For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He's saying this, the law can never give life. Instead, it condemns us to death. Think of it this way. The promise and law of God are both two parts of God's plan to save us. Okay? They look different, but they work hand in hand to bring us new life. And I want to explain further. In this promise, God, he holds out his gracious and greatest blessing. Who was that? Jesus. Salvation in Christ Jesus. But in the law, God, he controls and he restricts us as sinners in order to bring us at that, just at the right time and right place to the realization that we need Jesus. There's a difference, but same. It leads to the same thing. Paul goes on to talk about the law from verses 22-25. He says in verse 22 that we are imprisoned under sin. Verse 23, that we're captives under the law. Verse 23 also says that we are locked up until faith would be revealed. Let me tell you what sin does. And we have this misunderstanding that to live freely is to live the way we feel is right. Have you ever heard that? The way we feel gives us the most liberty. The way we feel goes, that goes against the establishment or any form of authority. The way we feel gives us freedom. But here clearly we see that all we're doing is living as prisoners held captive. 
Now, friends, you may think that you're living, and I don't know what's going on in your life, and I don't know what specific sin that you are harboring, but there's something going on in your life, and the way that you are living, immersed in your sins of, I don't know, pride or sexual immorality, hatred, bitterness, jealousy, whatever, you may think it's just a no big deal. That's something that you just have to perhaps deal with perhaps, or something that you just feel like, this is just who I am. These are what I go through. This is what I go through. This is a trend of our culture. This is just what society expects from me. So why bother changing? Well, according to this text, Here's the thing. You're not dealing with sin. You're not managing sin. Sin is dealing with you. You're not in control of, of your life of sin. Your life of sin is in control of you. And we have to understand that. And the longer you continue to just live in sin and not give it up to God, the more the Bible speaks of the increasing charge of guilt against your crime of transgression. You see, the law of God, you know what it's doing right now? It's building up a bigger and bigger case against your guiltiness before God the judge. So no, you're not actually free to live the way that you want, the way that makes you feel good, the way that you think may be good, the way that goes against God's law, because even though you think to live outside of God's rules, out of God's standards, means to live in freedom, you're really just a prisoner looking at the green grass through your prison window. But that's where verse 24 and 25 come to our rescue. You see, the law, I hope you understand, is weighing down upon our conscience and our hearts and making you realize that there is absolutely no way out of this. No way out. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now that's an interesting word that Paul uses here, guardian. As a parent, when you, once you have a child, you merely think of who, are, who could possibly be my child's God, uh, godparents. Or people in general that you would entrust to care for your children. When, you, when your kid goes on a field trip, you have to sign a waiver or permission slip transferring your authority to the teacher, chaperones who will act as temporary guardians to your child. Now, if you think of the word guardian and who you'd want to be your child's guardian, what's the first characteristic that would enter your mind? The first thing I'm thinking, honestly, is firmness or disciplinarian. I'm a fun guy, aren't I? Someone who will be vigilant, Right? You don't think, huh, the first thing I want in a guardian for my child is someone who will make them laugh. I mean, that's a great thing. That's probably not what you're thinking. It's not someone who, you probably won't be thinking, I want someone who will let my kids do whatever they want, who will let them eat whatever they want, sleep whenever they want, or do anything that he or she wants. When considering godparents, you don't want just a fun uncle or the fun aunt who knows how to have a pillow fight. You'll want one who knows how to properly feed your child, properly wash your child, and properly raise your child. Someone who's firm with rules, don't you? So how was the law like a guardian? God's design of the law was to be a temporary supervisor until Jesus Christ came. Its purpose was to protect and preserve by controlling and disciplining. Now that may seem harsh right now. The law of God is meant to control us and restrict us. 
I want you to think about it as a, as a, as a parent, perhaps. It may seem harsh. I know that I would entrust my child to someone like that over someone who has no boundaries. I'd rather have my child with a full stomach, washed clean, and ready to sleep by bedtime than my child dirty, hungry, tired, but had a few laughs that day. It sounds oppressive, but the law can be harsh and overbearing too. But that's just the point, because the law drives us and leads us to the freedom in Christ. Now let me describe this to you historically. God, he gave the promise of the gospel of grace to Abraham. 400 years later, God, he gives a law to Moses. And then 1,500 plus years later until Christ came, the law held Israel captive and it preserved them and it protected them. You know all those crazy rules that you read in Leviticus? Thou shalt make sure you don't eat this or you should wear this. Don't have tattoos here. Don't put piercings here. Don't eat um, shellfish. Go ahead and you know, wash yourself. You're unclean if this happens. All that stuff. It was to preserve them from the neighboring countries that were so opposed to the standards of God. So he brought this law to protect them and to discipline them and to preserve them and also to expose their sins, their transgressions so that they would want and desire and fall upon the grace of God to get right with God until the Messiah appeared. The whole nation of Israel was like a young child leaning to, learning to submit to his guardian parents had entrusted to until the child would grow up and grow up and grow up until he could be trusted with the parents' inheritance. And God does the same thing with us individually too. When we are children, he gives us parents. And our parents establish rules, and they rule over us, don't they? But these rules are made to protect and preserve us from ourselves until we grow up. I was shocked when I became a parent how many times I would tell my daughter, no. No, you can't touch that. No, you can't stick that in there. No, you can't. don't put that in your mouth. All this constantly, no, 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 no. And I felt bad until... You know, sometimes you just want them to sin so you can just say yes once. But even as adults, God's law bears down upon us. We may think we're doing well. We may think that we're doing well because we're doing better than others. Don't be deceived. Don't think that you are doing well with God or well in this life just because you're not going through what that person's going through. Just because you're financially a little bit more stable than that person, just because you may be a little bit more emotionally stable than that person, whatever. Do not think that. Because when you look upon the laws, the commandments of God, you'll see that you stand condemned. Because you cannot meet the perfect standard of God. This eye-opening moment should drive us to seek after God's mercy and to seek after his grace. And God's grace and mercy is his gospel. You see, everyone needs to start off with God's law so they know that they are lost and in need of saving. So even to this day, God still uses the law to drive us to abandon ourselves and come to Jesus. He says, there is no hope outside of me. No, I can do it. No, no, look at my law. You cannot. You have not. You never will. Abandon your vain pursuit of self-righteousness. Abandon your vain pursuit of comparative holiness. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We cannot serve two masters. And this is where I'm ending. 
There's something in your life right now that is mastering over you. It's a competing force in your life, and your submission to Christ will never happen until you surrender whatever issue of self-righteousness you currently possess. What is in your life that you fall back on to justify yourself when you're dealing with anger or bitterness or jealousy or pride? Look at the law and see how you fare. Look upon the perfection of God in all his glory and see if you can justify yourself standing before him in his presence. Look upon the humility of Christ who knew no sin and yet who died on the cross for you and see if you have any right to harbor any self-righteousness and judgment against anyone else. When we encounter the gospel of God's grace, we are transformed. We are united to Jesus by faith. We are accepted by God in spite of our many failings and transgressions. We are given His Spirit who indwells in us to lead us and to teach us and to guard us. And we no longer have to live under the guard or supervision of the law because the law was meant to expose our need for righteousness. And that righteousness is not something you can earn. It is not something that you can buy. It's not something that you can work towards. That righteousness can only be met and received in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Let's take a moment to pray. Let's close our eyes. Father, we ask that you would speak into our hearts. Speak into our hearts, Lord. And reveal by the light of your salvation the sins of transgression that we have that we have held against you these sins lord that we refuse to repent of because it has now become a source of comfort it has become a habit it has become something that has now just become a part of us And we may be able to live our day-to-day and just simply think, well, it's just not that big a deal. It's just what culture expects. I'm not as bad as the other person next to me. Or you know what? Maybe I'm just, um, you know, this is just the beginning, so I'll stop when I want to stop. I, 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 can, I, can, I can hold off or I can uh, I'll repent when I need to after I've had my fun. That's not how it works. You can try to justify it in your own mind. But the law of God has already spoken. And he says, you stand condemned. Don't expect 
that you can just waltz into my presence with a heart that is unrepentant, with a mind that is unwilling to conform to my standards. You know, we've always said this to ourselves, I want to be more like Christ. Do you? Do you honestly want to be more like Christ? Are you, do you honestly love Jesus? To the ladies, do you honestly want to marry a man or have your husbands be like Jesus? To the men, do you want to be like Jesus? Is that true? Then pick up the cross. Submit to one master. Surrender your sins. Surrender. And here's how I know that salvation is within you. Here's how we know that the Holy Spirit indwells in you. The fact that you can turn away from sin. Think about that for a second. In Christ, you have been bought you have been cleansed. The Spirit of God resides in you, not, not sin. It has already been won. Victory is with us. The things that are holding you back, know this, you have been empowered and equipped to turn away from it. But understand the law of God reveals to us that we can't do it with our strength. So as that bumper sticker goes, no Jesus, no peace. If you have Jesus, you will have peace. I want to encourage you all now just to take the next couple minutes and pray. Seek the grace of God. Understand what it took for Jesus to die on the cross for you and for me. Know that there was absolutely nothing that we could have done. And just bask in the glory of Jesus. Maybe right now you need to pray, God, I, I, want, I want to be more in love with you. Maybe right now your prayer is, Lord, I want my affections to be for you and you only. And if that's the case, let me ask you, what's the competing affection in your heart? Give that up. Our God is a jealous God and he will not, he will not share you with anything else in this world. Give that up. You want God, this is how. You want a new life in him. You want this year to be different. You want to encounter him in a spiritually powerful way. This is how. Come before him in repentance. Trust in his forgiveness of sins. Rely and rest upon his grace and his mercy. Let's take a moment and pray, okay? And then we'll go into our last song.